Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, We are getting into some monsters this week, right? Mm, Could be. Could be a monster. Could be something else. We're pulling on our waders and getting out into the woods, trying to catch us a Bigfoot. Not a Bigfoot, but close enough. Okay. Sean, we often say that Connecticut is much weirder than it's given credit for. Uh, With all the history and legends about paranormal happenings going on here that most non-natives don't know about. Mm -hmm. But as far as weird states go, perhaps none in America have as much claim on being the cryptid capital of the country than West Virginia. Um, The home to the Mothman. Mm -hmm. It has the Mothman, which we'll certainly go into depth on in the future, and our subject today, the so-called Flatwoods Monster. Are there others, or is it just, just the two? There's also Bigfoot. Well, yeah, but he's everywhere. <laughs> he's all over the place. He gets around. We're not quite sure what the Flatwoods monster is, if it even exists at all, of course. It could be a cryptid. It could even be an alien. But hopefully we have more answers by the end of this episode. Also true of Mothman, right? I mean, we, yes. don't, we don't know what Mothman is. Yes, exactly. Uh, aside from a queer icon. <laughs> why i don't know it's like um uh the babadook that one summer uh, and still in my heart i've seen on tiktok the last couple of years that interest in strange stories from the appalachian mountains area of the country has steeply increased with native appalachians sharing their folklore and encounters with the deeply weird in the area It really does remind me of what we try to do with New England stories here. Uh, There's such a rich history of oddity in both places, and both places, I think, are very underestimated in terms of their high strangeness. Well, let's get into it then, Carrie, with the uh, the Flatwoods Manston. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're really coming at this story and this area with uh, a sense of camaraderie, I think. And we'll be starting our own investigations into Weird Appalachia, uh, you know, as we go on. And this is this is the beginning. But to understand the area where this occurred, we have to kind of understand its history. So Appalachia stretches from the southern tier of New York State to northern Alabama and Georgia. And the term Appalachia generally refers to the central and southern portions of the Appalachian mountain range. And that's kind of from the New York Catskills to the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, in southern Pennsylvania to northern Georgia and the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and North Carolina. So it's kind of this region that we're talking about. Yeah, you can hike the Appalachian Trail if you want to. Mm -hmm. From the top all the way to the bottom (laughs) or the other way, I guess. There is a long history of discrimination for those living in Appalachia with many myths and distortions claiming to explain the behavior of its inhabitants. There have been many sensationalistic reports of the culture of Appalachia, often portraying the locals as uneducated and prone to violence. Yeah, deliverance type mm-hmm. uh, um, happenings. Yeah, the stereotypes are basically residents being rednecks or hillbillies. It's pretty obvious why this is incredibly problematic. 
Despite having abundant natural resources, Appalachia has long struggled economically and was much taken advantage of by the coal and logging industries. And for more of this, you can join our Patreon and check out our episode over there on the ghost town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, and how it was destroyed by coal mining mishaps. Very much on our travel bucket list. Yeah, I mean, this whole, I can make a road trip out of this episode for sure. It's an unfortunately common theme in this country for minorities to be marginalized, used, and then later segregated and mocked. And Appalachia is a prime example of this. Wow. I'm just saying how it is. I love I love it. <laughs> I love it. Carrie the defender of Appalachia. I'm I I like to defend the little people whenever I can. They're normal height down there, right? <sighs> Sean. Because of their sometimes physical isolation combined with a rich history and a strong, hearty culture, the area has tons of its own folklore that is now being spread to the masses, mostly via social media like TikTok. One popular fascination uh, that non-Appalachians have with the folklore of the area is that of the Skinwalker folklore. But as we mentioned back in our Werewolves episode, that particular lore is also heavily rooted in indigenous tradition, and it isn't really for us to speculate on, I don't think. But it's also not from that part of the country, right? In the native... No, the Skinwalker and and Appalachia really go hand in hand, at least when it comes to social media. (laughs) But it does highlight that there is a certain culture of storytelling and belief in this area. Mm -hmm. Where is Skinwalker Ranch, though? Different place. Yeah. I feel like it's the desert. That's skinwalkers are around, but it's it's. Of course, we, <laughs> Carrie. We all know skinwalkers it's, it's are around. It's more of a common belief. It's a common belief in that area or around that area. Like, like in it's that like, area, so it's not just something people believe about that no. area. Okay. Many of the stories have been influenced by this culture through to today, and you can check out another example again on our Patreon for one of their haint tales. Uh, a.k.a. ghost stories, and that's the case of the Greenbrier ghost. Oh, yeah, Which is kind of an interesting combination of true crime and paranormal, um, and you can get that on our Patreon minisodes. As, we, as well as many other ghosts, one would presume. <laughs> yeah. So let's, you know, with that background, let's jump in to the story of the Flatwoods monster. Just for reference, I pulled a lot of information from contemporary news sources as well as later analyses and a documentary called The Flatwoods Monster, A Legacy of Fear. Mm. And that's available on Vudu if you'd like to check that out. Is it should should they? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty breezy. Um, the people who made it are small town monsters on YouTube and they oh, do I a lot of meant- like short videos and it feels kind of like a longer version of that. I thought you meant they were actual monsters. No, no, but it's uh, it's well made and, um, you know, they get interesting interviews. So let's travel back to September 12th, 1952 into the hills of Appalachia in Braxton County, West Virginia. Here sits a town named Flatwoods, appropriately enough. Yes. And the location of this strange tale. On the night of September 12th, around 7.15 p.m., brothers Eddie and Freddie May, which is unfortunate, but I think one of them gave me a loan (laughs) for my college. (laughs) That's Fannie May. That's their sister. Uh, So these brothers, Eddie and Freddie May, along with their friend Tommy Heyer, were playing on the lawn of Flatwoods Elementary School. So it was probably a perfect night to run around outdoors. It's still warm from the end of summer, and it's light enough to enjoy some after-dinner playtime. 
seems like a good time all around. At this point, Eddie was 13, Freddie was 14, and Tommy was 10 years old. There's a little confusion over if there were any other kids with them while they're playing. Um, there's, there's a whole group later on, but accounts vary as to who was there at this point. But it does seem at the very least that Eddie, Freddie, and Tommy were present initially. Okay. Who else was there? I, I, I can't tell you. It, it changes. Eddie, Freddie, Tommy. I'm with you so far. <laughs> okay. As the youngsters played football, they suddenly saw a fiery light streak across the sky. They watched the object until it paused in the sky and then sank down and disappeared, seemingly landing on the hilltop of the nearby Bailey Fisher farm, owned by G. Bailey Fisher. Okay, I do see why people say this is a, a UFO story. Yes, I mean... It is one. Yeah, It could be, yeah. I mean, it, it is unidentified. They could see a light glowing into the sky from the other side of the hill after this point. Fred May later recalled, It wasn't like a shooting star or anything fast. It was floating down, but it looked like a ball of fire. It went over the ridge there, and we knew that land and where it went down. And it continued to glow. So they're very excited and intrigued. And they ran back to the May home, which was pretty close by, where they told their mother, Kathleen, all about what they had seen. So the group then either picked up or already included three more young men, Neil Nunley and Ronnie Shaver, who were 14 and 10 years old, respectively, and West Virginia National Guardsman Eugene, a.k.a. Gene Lemon, who was 17, along with Gene's dog, Richie. Oh, we've got a whole standby me out there at this point. <laughs> I think Gene was uh, Eddie Played and... by Finn Wolfhard? <laughs> no. Eddie and Freddie's, um, like, cousin so maybe he was visiting but he's older than everyone except for kathleen and the dogs there so kathleen freddie eddie tommy neil ronnie gene and richie the dog all went back to investigate what had possibly landed at the bailey fisher farm armed with little else than a flashlight no you are reading the original pitch for stranger things aren't you <laughs> it's very stranger things it, it definitely reminded me of like it like kids biking around seeing aliens you know it's very stranger things according to the article the phantom of flatwoods published 14 years later in the west virginia sunday gazette mail as the group neared the top of the hill at the farm kathleen may reported that the air became foggy and misty and that a peculiar metallic odor which burned their nostrils and hurt their eyes was prevalent as they crested the hill they also witnessed a red pulsating light in the woods which kathleen described as a huge ball of fire that was pulsing light and making a slight hissing sound about a hundred yards away okay time to go the other way right <laughs> they're very curious it's very weird the group agreed that the ball was around 10 feet or more in diameter. The group continued to get closer, reaching about 50 feet away from the glowing object when suddenly, to their left and about 75 feet away from them, there appeared two lights resembling powerful flashlights that seemed to be about a foot apart. When Gene uh, turned his own flashlight onto the lights, what appeared in the beam was utterly shocking to the entire crew. There stood what the group called a 10-foot-tall creature with a spade-shaped head and dark metal dress. So, Sean, I saved a couple pictures to the desktop uh, of this, what renderings 
uh, exist of this creature if you want to open oh, them. Oh, okay. This is Dr. Stephen Strange, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got a weird kind of pointed, rounded, hooded head and a dress kind of thing with like claw hands. In this rendering here, what it looks like behind, like it, this looks like behind his head, there's a big cowl or... Um, right, it could raised be raised collar. Yeah, it could be the head, or it could be like some sort of object of clothing, or hat, or hood, or whatever. That's why I said Doctor Strange, or or maybe uh, this is is this the new lead singer for Ghost? <laughs> There's a sepia picture, and that's like that has the very very original rendering. Oh, I see. Oh, it's big. Yeah. Um, Look at it tow- Kathleen, towering over that poorly drawn man. Yeah, Kathleen estimated the creature's height to be twelve feet tall with a width of four feet. Uh, the original news account from 1952 detailed that it had a blood red body and green face that seemed to glow. And it was also described as having green glowing eyes. So, Well, this one is bad then, this poster, because this is a green body with blood red eyes. <laughs> uh, Kathleen also reported it appeared to be moving towards us as if it were floating through the air. And as it glided toward the group, it also emitted another hissing sound described to be like fried bacon, whereupon Gene screamed and dropped his flashlight. Well, did it smell like bacon too? No, it was, a, it was a bad smell that accompanied it, if, if you recall, like a sulfuric smell. Well, yeah, but you could be bringing in the smell of delicious cooked meats <laughs> on top of that now to soften the blow. So John Gibson, a high school freshman in the area at the time, uh, kind of recounted what he had heard about the story. He said one of the boys peed his pants and their dog ran with its tail between his legs. Now, according to later testimony, and you know I hate this, Sean, the dog apparently ran back down to the village, vomited all over someone's veranda, and then died. What? Thankfully, because I was very concerned about this, it was confirmed in the documentary that this fact was an embellishment, and presumably Richie the dog survived the close encounter just fine. That's the real reason the documentary exists. It was <laughs> just me, a dog is. lover who had to. I, I, I need to be sure. <laughs> Ed later described the creature as nothing alive. It was a mechanical thing, pointed at the top and had portholes, and behind the portholes there was light. Fred added, it looked like the B-2 rockets that flew over, um, that Germany flew over and hit London with. Ed shared that it's my theory that something landed up there and they put what they call a sentinel down because that was the only exit that could get up to that place. What year was this? Is he talking about X-Men comics? Um, I mean, he could, this, this later testimony is from 2018 from the documentary, but they've had this experience in 1952. Yeah, okay. So, ooh, maybe he gave Stan Lee the idea for the (laughs) X-Men. Maybe. They gave a lot of people ideas, and we'll get into that. So, at this point, Gene has screamed. He dropped the flashlight. The dog's upset. Everyone flees. Understandably so. And they run back to the May home to call the sheriff of Braxton County, Robert Carr. Mm Mm-hmm. Strangely, Sheriff Carr and his deputy, Burnell Long, were answering another call at the same time, a report that a small cub airplane had crashed into a hillside on the south side of Elk River. Why is that strange? Because it's another uh, flying object that might have crashed somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) 
This report had come in from one Woodrow Eagle, who stated that he'd seen an object resembling a small airplane crash into the mountainside. Carr and Long's search failed to turn up any evidence of an accident, which is, again, strange. Mm. So, you know, kind of like, okay, they quickly made their way to Flatwoods to follow up on the new report from Kathleen May. Unfortunately, in the meantime, news had spread and a large group of locals had made their way to the hilltop. Uh, No one found anything particularly strange at that point. Everybody was like, we want to see the big death robot. Yeah. And the sheriff uh, ended up stating that he saw, heard, and smelled nothing. The next day, journalist A. Lee Stewart Jr. from the Braxton Democrat discovered skid marks in the field. Ew. (laughs) From a vehicle, presumably. Oh. (laughs) Along with an odd gummy deposit on the ground. Ew. (laughs) Stewart also reported in the original article about the encounter that of the original group, those people were the most scared people I've ever seen. People don't make up that kind of story that quickly. Kathleen stated, it was a hideous sight and I would give anything I own if I had not seen it. <laughs> so it's, I mean, they, they seemed traumatized. Some real HP Lovecraft, like yeah. mad from the, from the seeing of it stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about what happened after the incident and the strange stories that may lend credence to the group's terrifying experience after the break. Okay. Credence, you say? Clearwater Revival, baby. It came from the sky. That was good. I know. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Welcome back. Ain't it scary with Sean and Carrie. Uh, Caroline, in the, in the last segment, I started by making some kind of a Bigfoot joke because uh, you had told me this was a, a cryptid episode. Well, it's uh, very commonly called a cryptid, the Flatwoods monster, but... Uh, here we are with a, with a giant robot with like porthole eyes, and I'm just waiting for a young boy to befriend it and then both to become better from the experience. Iron Giant Styles. Yes. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it when we kind of draw our own conclusions, but it's very often cited as a cryptid, but it's very alien, the story. Well, so I, I don't really know what to think about it. Unless there's going to be like more stories, unless that was like a minority of the stories. Um, I, it just sounded more like a big piece of technology than it sounded like a... a, a like a, a creature? A creature, yeah. Well, after the first stories popped up in the local press, the strange tale began to spread, being picked up by national papers and radio broadcasts across the country. Calls and even tourists came, asking questions about this strange monster. 
How big was it? <laughs> Is the little boy friends with it yet? <laughs> and along with them came investigator Gray Barker. This is kind of a, a big name in ufology. This is Bob's brother, right? <laughs> no. Who he's ashamed of? <laughs> no. Gray Barker was from the small town of Riffle, I think. It's Rifle with two Fs, so yeah, Riffle. Sure, it, they make the famous Riffle ball bat. <laughs> it's not as popular as the, uh, as the Wiffle. <laughs> riffle is also located in Braxton County, so his proximity made him interested. While working as a theater booker nearby, he first heard about the Flatwoods monster and began to collect stories about the case, eventually writing an article on the subject called The Monster and the Saucer, published in Fate magazine in 1953. Fate, uh, Fate is still going on, I think, and it's, it's a long, long-running paranormal magazine. So this is Gray Barker's kind of first foray into what he would make uh, as a career. I did try to recover this particular article from the internet, but alas, it's mostly lost to the sands of non-digitalization. Yep, yep. But chunks do remain cited in other sources, so I do kind of refer to that. Gray Barker sounds like a man in a smart suit in a fedora, but why do I feel like he was more rumpled than I'm picturing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could look him up if you want. According to Skeptical Inquirer, Barker noted in his article that numerous people in a 20-mile radius saw the illuminated objects in the sky at the same time. Barker also believed that the incident was consistent with other reports of flying saucers or similar craft, and such a vehicle landed on the hillside either from necessity or to make observations. Uh, You know, he wasn't a bad-looking guy. He just lost the ability to wear good ties when he started (laughs) writing about UFOs. It's interesting as the timeline here. That's usually what happens, yeah. Barker soon wrote the first book on the men in black phenomena, titled, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Catchy. Very terse. Yeah, we'll talk about this and um, more about Barker another time when we we cover the men in black, which is, um, most people don't know, it's a story that originated in Bridgeport, our our town. But um, it's interesting to see how his investigative career really began with the Flatwoods incident. Also joining Barker in Flatwoods was Ivan T. Sanderson, a British biologist described by the Gazette Mail as probably the only one qualified to conduct such an investigation, known the world over as a scientist and investigator of strange and unusual phenomena. Did they know each other previously, like old rivals? It is you, (laughs) Gray Barker. I have no idea if they crossed paths during this time. As I live and (laughs) breathe. (laughs) I really don't know if they crossed paths. I assume they probably did. Sanderson is still noted as being a founding figure of cryptozoology, and he came to town with his assistant, Eddie Schoenberger, to make a complete study of the Flatwoods event. Sanderson found a farmer who lived about three miles away from where the incident occurred and gave his own testimony about that night. And the farmer stated that he watched the object and for about 10 to 15 minutes, it continued to pulse, pulsing the same colors, but getting redder and redder with a weaker and weaker amount of light. Oh, you should keep doing the same thing then. (laughs) The farmer also felt very sure that the whole... Ew. (laughs) I just got that. The farmer also felt very... very, Like, fuck you. (laughs) 
Oh, God. Sorry, Mom and Dad. The farmer also felt very sure that the whole object itself was shrinking in size until it disappeared 20 minutes later in a pinpoint of light, leaving complete darkness. Others also attested to seeing an object flying through the sky that night with reports of up to six objects total being spotted, one exploding over the Elk River, perhaps the reported small plane crash. These aliens are terrible pilots. <laughs> and four others being spotted in the same time period moving across the country, like across different states. Okay, now the what they're seeing in the air are fi- like fi- just fireballs? Yeah, red lights okay. is it's, what they're mostly called. It's not giant hooded men traveling across the sky. No, no they're, they're mostly called pulsating red lights. I will also add that it is Ivan Sanderson who said that the dog threw up and then died. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm a little annoyed with him. <laughs> well, especially if it was just a lie, then it is in uh, slightly poor taste. Yeah. An- in, in poorer taste than the other lies. Right. Another creature similar in description to the Flatwoods monster was reported shortly before the sighting at the Bailey Fisher farm by one Audrey Audra Harper in Heater, West Virginia, about three miles north of Flatwoods. Harper typed up her account sometime around 1962. So I'll read that now because we still have that con- not confession. Um, Confession. <laughs> Confession. I am the Flatwoods monster. <laughs> you know what I mean. That uh, account. I don't know. Some that names have. Account. Yeah. Some names have been redacted, but this is how she put it. One night, Jay and I started to the store and were taking a near cut through the field. We looked up on the hill and saw a fire. I said, I wonder who that is up there. And she said, oh, probably Jess blank fox chasing. We might have said a half dozen words and glanced back up again. And this time it was a ball of fire. Did they say, do they have a friend named blank or was she just leaving the name? I said it's redacted. Oh, that was the redacted part. Yes. Sure. (laughs) Um, so this time it was a ball of fire. This time we couldn't take our eyes away. As quick as quick can be, the ball of fire vanished and a tall black figure, three heights of a man, stood in the same place. We started running, crossed a bar- barbed wire fence that I never even saw, so I guess they were running fast, and came to a gate. We opened it and Jay started to close it. It is right behind us, she said. I didn't think it was possible for it to have had run twice the distance we did. I turned around and fastened the gate before I looked up. There it stood. I can't remember anything but just this huge black shape. We turned and ran through a field that in daylight you can hardly find a path between the rocks and boulders. Jay had the light and I didn't have any, but I never even stubbed my toe. I think God must have been directing my feet. We made it to the store, half scared to death, knowing we still had to return the same way we came. We tried to borrow a gun, but everyone thought we were just imagining things. (laughs) They didn't believe a word we said. We started back alone, but two neighbor boys had come down for a beer or two, and they went back past this awful place with us. Pretty nice. Sure. To have an experience like this and no one believe us was was terrible to bear. Then a woman and some children saw a huge form of a sort at Flatwoods a few miles from us, and they even had her on television and wrote a big story about the Flatwoods monster. So this is the later incident. I know we saw something just as bad. I'm 33 years old, and there is no insanity in our family. I think I'm at least average in smartness, but think think me crazy, if you will. I will never believe anything else. 
I th- I think she's at least average in smartness too. Well, she saw this probably late forties, early fifties. She might have not have had a very comprehensive education. She's a woman in West Virginia in the mid century. You know, this account eventually made its way into the hands of Harper's granddaughter Ashley, who donated it to the Flatwoods Monster Museum. And yes, there is a Flatwoods Monster Museum, and we'll talk about that more later. Yeah, starting when? Jeez. (laughs) So going on, on September 13th, 1952, which is just a day after the incident in Flatwoods, another strange incident occurred near the aptly named Strange Creek, about 20 miles south. We don't know what happened to cause it to be named that, do, uh, do we? I think it was already called Strange Creek, but I don't know where the name comes from. Oh, maybe Stephen Strange again. Maybe he owned it. (laughs) I mean, I think you've really, you've really nailed it. According to both the documentary and BraxtonWV.org, George and Edith Snitowski were traveling with their 18-month-old son from visiting relatives in Ohio back to their home in New York through the rural area between Clay and Braxton County on Route 4. So they're taking a scenic route from Ohio to New York. Suddenly, their car died, and it could not be started again, even though they couldn't really see why it had died in the first place. The road was deserted, and it was nighttime, so the couple were kind of trying to figure out what they should do, and they had this baby Mm -hmm. they needed to take care of. As they're talking, an odd sulfurous smell filled the air, and the baby began to cry. George, concerned the car was on fire which is fair. Sure. He jumped out. Or at and least someone's <laughs> trying to strike matches, I guess, in the backseat. Uh, he jumped out and popped the hood to investigate if there was any mechanical issue causing the terrible smell. Nothing was found. He couldn't figure out why the car died in the first place. He couldn't figure out the source of the smell. Without warning, a bright light filled the darkness in the woods by the road, causing George to move toward the light, despite the smell getting increasingly worse as he did. So he couldn't explain later why he did this? Pretty much, yeah. And he began stumbling and became violently ill, but he witnessed a glowing object in the woods. Whenever I think I said this to you in a recent episode. Whenever it says violently ill, I I have to assume <sighs> vomiting. Yeah, like yeah. he's he's like stumbling forward toward this light, projectile vomiting on himself. <laughs> it's really horrifying. <laughs> so once he he sees the glowing light in the woods, he turns away and retreats back to the car just in time for his wife, Edith, to let out a blood-curdling scream. You're all covered in vomit! (laughs) Behind him was what they described as a 10-foot-tall figure hovering in front of their car. The description here is similar to that of the Flatwoods monster, um, except in this case, the monster didn't have what is presumed to be a spade-shaped hood on, so the head's shaped differently. It doesn't have that weird, rounded, sides-pointed top look yeah they removed the lantern shade (laughs) whatever it is Uh, george dove back into the car and put edith and their baby on the floor to shield them which is again pretty thoughtful this creature dragged a lizard-like hand across the hood of the car before drifting back away into the woods as soon as the monster was out of sight george was able to restart the car with no trouble and the couple sped away 
George later gave his account to Mail Magazine in 1955. Mail Magazine? M-A-L-E. Sign me up. Strange. I got to find out. This is, this is stuff for, for males. Yeah, the UFO encounters and such. Yeah, and like, I don't know, prostate checks, I guess? Uh, I guess. The same day, the National Guard of nearby Gassaway was dispatched by the Air Force to investigate the Flatwoods incident from the night before. Captain Dale Levitt, who was in charge of the Special Forces Unit in West Virginia, went with 50 to 60 men to check out the Bailey Fisher Farm site, while the others were sent along the Elk River to try and find the supposed other crashed aircraft. 50 to 60? This is a mob. This is a kill the beast situation. <laughs> I guess. They've got pitchforks. Levitt's group apparently found an impression in the ground approximately 20 feet in circumference and also some type of greasy substance in the grass. Later, retired, uh, now Colonel Levitt, stated in an interview that the grass smelt of burnt sulfur and that he was ordered to send away any evidence he found to the Pentagon. How much later? I don't know. So take this with a grain of salt because I can't find any original sources. Um, it, it's on flatwoodsmonster.com, which the, appears to be a home base for a book on the case called mm. the Braxton County Monster by Frank C. Fascino Jr. So I'm going to hope that he got these quotes from Levitt himself mm -hmm. or a good source that's in the book, but I don't have the book. Well, if any of the readers have read it let us know and in the meantime we'll uh we'll look into grabbing a copy for ourselves <laughs> and following up well levitt is quoted on the website as saying something was a cover-up i think it came from someplace else personally there was something here that could fly backwards or anywhere they wanted to go just anywhere i think as long as they didn't tear, tear up their equipment there was a limb here and it scooted underneath it whatever it was so i don't know I don't know where the quote comes from, if it's directly to the author. I well, maybe, know. yeah, maybe he interviews him in the book. Yeah. Kathleen May, later in life, would say that she received a strange letter from the Pentagon about the sighting, claiming that what they had seen on September 12th were merely experimental rockets. She couldn't recall the exact details of the letter, because this was decades later, but she did remember that it ended with a warning. Keep quiet and don't tell anyone anything about the event. Kathleen did not give a single shit, however. <laughs> and uh, soon after the incident, she, along with Jean Lemon and newspaper editor A. Lee Stewart, would appear on the New York TV program We the People to discuss the incident and show the first artist's rendering of what they had seen that night drawn by Stewart himself. Good for you, Kathleen. And, and this is Stewart on the left here? That's Jean. Stuart drew the picture, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I take back what I said about uh, being a poorly drawn man. I think he did a nice job here. <laughs> um, so Fred explained that while the trip to New York itself was paid for, neither Kathleen nor Jean were paid for their stories. So I assume he, he mentioned that to um, lead credibility, I guess. Well, sure. But for a couple teenagers, it's still fun to take a trip to New York. I don't think Kathleen was a teenager, but... Oh, they yeah. look they look young. But yeah, oh, sure. she was probably young. She was a single mother, young mother. Freddie and Eddie, along with their friends, would sometimes have to field disbelief from their peers, along with continuous requests for interviews through till at least 2018 when the documentary was made. But that doesn't change what they felt they saw. 
As far as for myself, it doesn't make any difference whether people believe me or they don't, said Fred, elaborating that Kathleen May, the lady who put Flatwoods on the world map, that's what's important to me. (laughs) That you know there is a Flatwoods, West Virginia. And for both brothers, it was important that people understood that they felt they had seen something mechanical and not necessarily monstrous. Yeah, well, they, you know what? Good, good for them. That's a that's a positive take. And we do, we do know Flatwoods, although I didn't before tonight. <laughs> yeah, and for the other um, witnesses, you know, it's very strange. The other boys that are mentioned across the stories. Um, I I could not find them being found and interviewed very often. I think they were initially back in the 50s. And one of them might still be alive. But they're all like they don't want to talk and they, they haven't wanted to talk about it. And they're not in contact with the maze, I don't think. Well, I'm sure there's not that much money in being one of the guys who saw that thing that time. Yeah, it's just interesting. And I, I just wouldn't be wanted. I wouldn't want to be bothered with it after a while, right? Either I don't think. And Fred and Ed uh, both said that they were, you know, they wish that it hadn't happened. Is what they said multiple times in the documentary. They wish it had never happened to them. Why? Oh, also they're interviewed in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, most of the later days quotes come from the documentary, and um, I assume because you know it's kind of like that story. Um, of the Berkshires UFO that we talked about in New England UFOs where mm-hmm. the kids involved were like teased by their peers and, and not believed. And, you know, they've had to at, give interviews all these years for people and stuff. Um, I, I They just say that they wish it had never happened to them. Yeah. No, I mean, no one makes them do interviews. <laughs> no, I know. I um, mean, they have to respond to requests and sometimes that's a no, right? You but, don't even have to respond. They're asked a lot, is the, is the point that I, I'm making. Trust a newsman. <laughs> People don't always answer you when you ask for an interview. I'm sure they don't all the time, but I think they wanted to kind of get everything on the record for this documentary and leave it be. The creature became most often referred to as the green monster. And, uh, and then he moved up to Boston. <laughs> oh, I don't know why that was uh, Dice saying that. Yeah, for I don't some know. Reason. Uh, sometimes called the Braxton County Monster or Braxy, and later, in popular parlance, the Flatwoods Monster. The town of Flatwoods itself bears the statement, Home of the Green Monster, on its Welcome to Flatwoods sign. Wow, and, and Boston hasn't taken legal action yet. <laughs> no. And there he is, yes, now a Flatwoods Monster Museum. Located on Main Street in downtown Sutton, West Virginia, um, about 10 minutes down the road from where the May family lived back at the time of the incident. Do they have this original rendering? Yes, that is one of the um, bits of memorabilia you can find at the museum. They have the original drawing. I thought you were going to say no, and then I was going to say, no. I'm out. But, um, <laughs> but but I guess we have to go now. Yeah, there are several different displays. That's one of them. Uh, you can get merch to bring home. Sure. Uh, I, I Flatwoods Monster Art. I certainly could have guessed there was a Flatwoods Monster gift shop, yes. Oh, for sure. The Braxton County Convention and Visitors Bureau also built a series of five tall chairs in the shape of the monster to serve as landmarks and visitor attractions. Nope. Uh, little little towns who want to become little tourist towns love those big chairs. Mm-hmm. 
the Bureau rewards visitors who photograph all five chairs with free Braxy stickers. <gasps> like free, like the slogan is free Braxy yeah. or it's a free sticker that says no, Braxy? No, free Braxy. I want this. Yeah, we have to go. And you could finish out the day at The Spot, a restaurant and ice cream parlor that serves up alien-themed subs and monster-themed decor. As BraxtonWV.org proudly uh, proclaims, if you can't get enough of the Flatwoods monster, the spot is the place to be. It's a .org? Yeah, this is the town website or the county website. They're very proud. I just went out of .gov. They couldn't pop for the the .gov? (laughs) I I don't know if it's official town government. Oh, God, it might be the Better Business Bureau. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bureau. Sure. Uh, so the Monster Museum itself is right down the road from West Virginia Bigfoot Museum and about two hours from Point Pleasant and the Mothman Museum. So, yeah, I think I know where I want to go on our next, vac- next vacation, John. I, uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, well, it's just a little hop, skip and a jump past Centralia. Yeah, which I also want to go to. All right. We've got our, <laughs> we've got our itinerary set up. <laughs> it's very romantic. Ooh, I can't wait. The Flatwoods Monster has become another piece of Appalachian folklore passed down through the generations from its origin almost 70 years ago now to become an indelible part of Braxton County culture. And it's 70 years this September, so we're coming up on it. We always do these we always with, do with a nice this. anniversary coming up. <laughs> Andrew Smith, executive director of the Braxton County Visitor Bureau, told documentarians, I've noticed a real increase in civic and local pride surrounding the monster, where maybe 15 to 20 years ago, you wouldn't have had that, which I think is just, just such a funny thing to say. I don't know. The civic pride around the monster, it makes me smile. Um, yeah, but, but you do see that. Even like Lake Champlain is probably a slightly larger town Champ. than this, and, mm-hmm. and they love Champy. They mm-hmm. love him. Mm-hmm. It helps that the creature I, has- I shouldn't misgender Champy. They love whatever Champy chooses to be. <laughs> It helps that the creature has found popularity even outside of Flatwoods, appearing now in a wide variety of media. Gamers might even recognize the monster from video games like Everybody's Golf 4 and Fallout 76. Well, I love Everybody's Golf. Yeah, there's a creature that appears on one of the courses, like in the background, sneaking around the woods, that looks exactly like the Flatwoods monster, apparently. Excellent. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So for Fallout 76, the game takes place in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia 25 years after a nuclear strike and includes the monster as a mutant creature inspired by the Flatwoods monster story, uh, along with his friend, the Mothman. Oh, sure. Or her friend, the Mothman. I mean, it is wearing a dress, but, you know, who's to say? Is it 15 feet tall? It's probably pretty big. By the way, so one of these accounts, do we think there were, what do you think is going on? Maybe you're getting to a, what did we think is going on? I am. Okay, I'll I'll let you (laughs) proceed, counselor. (laughs) But watch yourself. Now, games aren't the only place you can find uh, Braxy, as they might call it. The second episode of the History Channel series Project Blue Book is based on the incident. And West Virginian rock singer Argyle Goolsby. No. uh, Yes. Released a song in 2013 called The Being. All about the Flatwoods Monster. It's a pretty good song, too. I listened to it. You It'll know, be on our... Uh, oh, and if you don't know, we have an official podcast playlist with songs uh, that are mentioned or inspired by topics. Um, so 
check that out. It's on Spotify and the being will be on there. You know, I've, I've often wondered how I managed to land you, you know what I mean? But obviously it's because Argyle Goolsley was already taken. Goolsby. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Carrie Goolsby would definitely be something. Yeah. <laughs> well, you almost got to Carrie Macabre. That's not bad. I'm close enough and that's all I need. So as you were asking, Sean, what was the Flatwood Monster and why was it there? The skeptical belief is that it was simply an owl spotted sitting on a tree branch, which is also an explanation for the Mothman sightings in Point Pleasant a bit over a decade later. Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry felt that this was the logical explanation. With the initial object in the sky being a meteor, the pulsating red light being an aircraft navigation or hazard beacon, and the monster itself being a startled barn owl perched on a tree limb. And to kind of make this up, the foliage underneath the bird would make up the monster's skirt, and the small, claw-like hands of the monster would be the bird's talons. Nickel wrote in his article, The Flatwoods UFO Monster, uh, and this is a quote, Johnny Lockard, 95, told me that virtually anyone who had seen the alleged flying saucer in 1952 recognized it for what it was, a meteor. He, his daughter Betty Jean, and her husband Bill Sumter said that the fireball had been seen on a relatively horizontal trajectory in various states. Mm -hmm. In fact, according to a former local newspaper editor, there is no doubt that a meteor of considerable proportion flashed across the heavens that Friday night since it was visible in at least three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The meteor explanation contrasts with the fanciful notions of Ivan Sanderson, he cites several persons who each saw a single glowing object. Although observing that all of the objects were traveling in the same direction and apparently at the same speed and exactly the same time, he fails to draw the obvious conclusion that there was one object, albeit variously described. Right. And the Air Force basically agreed with this theory, concluding that the uh, that bright but common meteors had streaked across the eastern U.S. at dusk that night and that the monster with the claw-like arms was likely an owl. Well, they love to go with the not fun explanation of, of the Navy. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe, it was a single soldier, a sentinel, like Ed May said, which could either be a human enemy or some sort of scout for an alien invasion. Or maybe it was even a benevolent extraterrestrial mistaken for a monstrous being, a la the day the Earth stood still. Or, as it's frequently designated as of now, uh, it's a cryptid native to the area's woods, just like Bigfoot. I mean, the second sighting you mentioned, they had it as like 15 to 20 feet tall, right? It was three heights, they said. Three heights of, of a human man. And this is technically the first sighting. This so, happened just before the incident. So it's eight, like 18 feet tall. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty hefty. I'm looking at like a 15 foot tall robot in this picture. And then the, the other account was of a 10 foot tall um, creature that actually dragged its claws across the hood. Yeah, I will say there are varying perspectives. You know, the, the two women saw the very tall creature. And I'm really bad at estimating height. I think everything is super tall compared to me. Well, everything is super tall compared so to one, you. So once something hits like 10 feet, I don't know. Everything's humongous. So I have no clue. Um, the group probably had the best Quick, sense. How tall is the Statue of Liberty? Uh, real tall. 
20 feet at least. <laughs> Super big. Um, now, the group probably had the best sense of it because they were all standing there and they all were able to kind of talk about what they had seen. Um, and then the the couple, you know, they're kind of, he's barfing and, and falling over and she's in the <laughs> sure, car. Sure. They're, they're, so they're I, in they're, they have a different perspective naturally i mean she's sitting in the car she sees it looming over him he's puking his guts out he sounds like he has a different perspective on a lot of things <laughs> i don't know i mean i i don't think the height differences are really a problem here because everyone everyone viewing it had a different perspective mm-hmm. you know so but it, um yeah i don't know what what do you think happened what was the flatwoods monster I don't know. When you said there was a military guy or a, a cop who said that there was a burned section of a circular section of like burned grass, there was an like an indent, like something heavy had been there, almost like a crop circle sort of thing. But you know, like when you have a big item in the grass and it pushes everything down. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, that's and vaguely... skid marks as we. So, yeah, but that's Imagine. not. There's kids mudding out there in their trucks, you know. <laughs> that's yeah. All the mud leaves the skid marks. Um, so I don't know. I you've got three different sightings on this one night. Now the thing streaking across the sky. I think you and I can agree was that meteor in all likelihood for all of these people. Could be. I mean, because they. I don't know if meteors are red, but the brothers also seem pretty certain that what they saw was not a shooting star or anything like that. They said it streaked across the sky, but then kind of paused in midair and then floated down to the hilltop. Like it didn't have, it didn't crash, so to speak. You and I have seen one of these fireball meteors that like kind of explodes, breaks up and, and, and starts going down a little. Yeah, but... That doesn't sound like the same description as what they're seeing here. No, but, you know, that that could be the difference in their description. I guess my point is all all three of these people all saw a very similar sounding. As that that one uh, thing you read said, all of them saw a very similar um, thing to something that we knew was in the sky that night. So, So that seems like the natural explanation for that part. Right, but like the creature, it's very hard for me to buy that this is an owl, especially with six to seven people and a dog seeing this. Like, <laughs> like the dog. Can the dog <laughs> testify. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I would be shocked if at least one of that pretty large group of people didn't go, oh, that's an owl. Yeah, it's more like like we've all done the thing where you see a hat on top of a chair with a coat. Oh, in the dark. In and the it's dark. Spooky. And you're like, oh, fuck. But there was light and they, they did shine a flashlight directly on it. Right. And that's usually only for like a second that you're scared of that. And then you go, oh, why did I buy a fedora? Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's hard for me. I don't know. It's always hard for me to believe the owl stuff because if it's like one or even two, maybe two people, but like six to seven people all mistaking an owl for a mechanical super monster is a little much to ask, I think. I agree. And I would especially agree if the alternative wasn't giant super monster or robot. What if it was like a B-2 rocket from the Germans or, or some sort of... Oh, it sounded like he said B2. Oh, I think it's I think it's V2. Um, what if it's a giant rocket from 
some enemy and then there's like a like a mechanical being inside of it what if it's like all people and and machine but it's still weird and strange well i just feel like we would have heard about that by now we are right now no, it's no. the flatwoods monster no i just mean 70 years <laughs> later it would have been used in a war or mm. something at some point yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to buy that it's an owl because of how many people witnessed it and didn't think it was an owl. But I don't know what it could be otherwise. Well, and it only happened kind of that one night? Three nights, technically. The two girls who saw it first. Oh, yeah, those weren't all on the same occasion. The group who saw it on the 12th. Right. And then uh, the Snitowskis who saw it on the 13th. Yes. So. Yeah, so... I don't know, but it's interesting that it doesn't... You would think you would get more reports of it throughout if it was just something that could happen whenever an owl perched on a branch in a spooky area. Well, again, it's, I mean... It's probably spooky out there, right? It's rural? Yeah. Well, it's wood wooded. We have the Mothman coming in less than a decade later, or a little more than a decade later. Um, there's a lot of reports of flying saucers or you know UFOs in the sky over West Virginia. Does anyone say that this is the Mothman? I didn't see that, but uh, it could be. What color are his eyes? Red. Famously red. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's an owl, but I don't know what it could be if it's not an owl. I will say that if an owl's eyes obviously are reflective and really big, not just the eye, but it's but got if the... But sh- if you shine a flashlight directly on an owl, I know that's a friggin' owl. No, if you shine a flashlight directly on an owl, actually, its eyes will just look like two gigantic, like Harry Potter lenses. Yeah, but you can still see the owl around the eyes. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It, depending on how far away it is, depending on whether it's backlit. I mean, if it, it, if it was an owl, then what was what was the light and the the craft in the woods well, that behind I, it? I have no idea. It's there's so many questions. And I feel like I have nothing to back this up. Well, no, I'm I'm sure there were less aircraft in the in the sky in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that means it's less. You know, it, I I don't know if that means I shouldn't buy that it's a, an aircraft light they saw or whatever. Um, but there, there's blinking red lights on lots of things. That part I don't really have trouble with this was pulsating but yes that's fair <laughs> enough <laughs> yeah i don't know um and i'm not saying i agree that it's weird that like three different people would mistake say an owl for for something like this although one person hears the report and then when they see an owl or whatever right like okay too. you can kind of explain at least the next day the snitowskis i don't know why he'd be smelling this terrible smell and then barfing all over the place and then running away like there's a lot going on there. there's a lot of reaction there he was he was crop dusting well, not crop dusting he was stuck in the car he, he was dutch ovening his wife he, no he felt bad and tried to lie about where the smell was coming from she also saw saw it outside the window it's not just farts sean it's not just farts all right, all right. I'm, I'm one of these days. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna be able to apply that as a as an explanation, as a uh, uh, unifying theory for one of these whole uh, situations. I just can't wait. Um, I, I actually, you know, it would have been the time is spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> you spontaneously combust every night, my love. Oh boy. True terrors of horror. 
bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Let's head to the Bazaar Bazaar for some, oh my God, is that good news? Good news? That can't be. Those, <laughs> those words don't go together anymore. We decided that uh, two years ago. Yeah. Back in our episode, Henry VIII, Portrait of a Serial Killer, we shared the story of Carrie LaPierre and her 8th grade civics class, who were then campaigning for convicted Salem witch trials, which Elizabeth Johnson Jr. to finally be officially pardoned by the state of Massachusetts. In 1957, Massachusetts lawmakers passed a bill that exonerated numerous victims condemned during the witch trials, but Johnson's name just hadn't made it to the list, and apparently also slipped through the cracks when another similar bit of legislation was enacted in 2001. And and we couldn't figure out whether there were enemies of her family in the legislature or I, why this was? I think what might have happened is that Elizabeth Johnson Sr., a.k.a. just Elizabeth Johnson, was convicted and exonerated, and maybe Jr. fell through the cracks because she had the same name. But at any rate, till now, she was the last convicted witch in the Salem witch trials still waiting for a pardon. Mm. Thanks to the efforts of La Pierre and her now high schoolers, Johnson has officially had her name cleared by Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker as part of a $53 billion state budget the governor just approved. Amazing. State Senator Diana DiZolio added the amendment to the budget bill thanks to the persistence of the class's campaign. Said DiZoglio, these students have set an incredible example of the power of advocacy and speaking up for others who don't have a voice. LaPierre herself was thrilled at the news, telling the New York Times that, I'm excited and relieved, but also disappointed that I didn't get to talk to the kids about it because they're on summer vacation. It's been such a huge project. We called her EJJ, all the kids and I. She just became one of our world, in a sense. So now the uh, very last victim of the Salem witch trial, she didn't die. She uh, The trials ended before she... She didn't die? No, she was convicted and no, sentenced... No, she's alive now? No. She was... Con- oh, yeah. 
Sean. She was convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, and we talk about this during our trials episodes. But the trials themselves ended um, pretty quickly when Governor Phipps put a stop to them when his wife was accused. Uh, yes. So she she was on death row, but then she went free. Our old bunny, bunny, our old buddy Emerson Baker, who wrote the book A Storm of Witchcraft, uh, which you may remember that we used for our Salem Witch Trials episodes. No, you said bunny because he was also (laughs) playmate of the month in September 1984, wasn't he? Emerson Baker may have put it best. For all the government and people of Massachusetts Bay put Elizabeth and her family through, exonerating Johnson is the least we can do. And uh, that's the kind of final... I guess, uh, postscript to that whole thing. Now everyone has been exonerated and pardoned and, you know, reclaimed by history. Good for them. I um, I made a mixtape every chance I could for a high school project. Yeah, this is much more effort than I ever put into anything in school. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at AintItScary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash Ain't It Scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will, and we offer our sincere and utmost thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love you all. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.